Hey fellow album divers, Trevor here. And before we sit down with author James Campion to discuss his new book on Hey Jude, I wanted to take a moment to let JJ from the band Stylist Theory introduce you to their music as I just discovered them myself and have been listening ever since. Check it out. Hey, this is JJ from Stylist Theory. We are a three-piece band rooted in classic rock with an indie vibe and a splash of prog. Stylist Theory is based in Chicago and was formed in 2000. After a long hiatus, we have come back together to write and record new material and re-release some tunes from the archive. Currently, there are two EPs available on all your favorite streaming platforms, and we are excited to get back into the studio this summer. Thanks for listening. to the show. Welcome to Album Divers. This is a podcast created by two music lovers who still remember listening to albums from start to finish the way the artists intended. We give history, track by track analysis, and delve into the music lyrics of some of the best albums of the past and today. Thanks for joining us. Let's dive in. Welcome to Album Divers. I'm Shane. And I'm Trevor. On this podcast, we take turns choosing albums to discuss and review. We alternate between an album released this calendar year and one that's been around a while. But this time, we have something a little different. We're fortunate to have renowned author James Campion on the show. James is a syndicated columnist and editor for the pop culture magazine The Aquarian Weekly. His long-form essays are featured in the webzine Dog Door Culture and his work has appeared in several periodicals, including Huffington Post, New York Newsday, and Hack Writers, just to name a few. James is also the co-host of the popular podcast, Underwater Sunshine, with Counting Crows frontman Adam Duritz, and the two also host an annual music festival of the same name. His latest book, Take a Sad Song, The Emotional Currency of Hey Jude, was released on June 1st, 2022, by Backbeat Books, a division of Rowan and Littlefield. Signed first edition hardcover copies of his book can be ordered through James' website, which we have put a direct link to in the show notes for anyone listening who is interested. We are so excited to talk with James about the writing process and some of the stories behind this incredible song. So without further ado, here is our conversation with author James Campion. Hey Jude, don't make it bad. Take a sad song and make it better Remember to let her into your heart Then you can start to make it better hey, All right, James, well, thank you so much for joining us. Man, we're so excited to talk about this book with you. And I have to just say, as two guys who occasionally get a little bit self-conscious about devoting three hours an episode to an entire album. I think we're both feeling a little bit of validation talking to somebody that's devoted an entire book to one song. 
But welcome, <laughs> welcome to Album Divers. We're so excited to have you. It's always nice to be on fellow lunatics show. Yeah, that's that's a good way to describe it for sure. Yeah, you're in good company. In, for indeed. Sure. One of the things that we really loved, in addition to reading this book, is just going back and reading your bio a little bit and remembering you've lived a lot of lives before becoming a writer and some of the books that you've uh, written since then. Can you give us a little bit of a background on what you were doing before writing and where some of your inspiration might have come from and love of music and all of those things? Well, again, thank you guys for being on the show. I enjoy it. Um, I guess what you're asking is I, I had uh, a spate as a sports journalist and I hosted a, a sports show in the early 90s called The Extra Inning where I interviewed uh, baseball players, managers, other authors. It was actually during that period when I started to write again because I got out of it for a while in my 20s. I was in a band called Satire in the 80s. We actually had a, a short stint there. So I was always around music, writing about music, but I ended up doing a lot of research for different authors, and that really helped me a great deal in what I do today. And that is to make sure that all the T's are crossed and the I's are dotted and that you tell the story in a narrative form. And it's a pay me now or pay me later concepts. Either you put a lot of time and effort before you ever start typing out the, the work, or you don't, and you spend a lot of time on the back end doing a lot of work. So uh, I had some great mentors in that way. And and that was a time when I, I, I started to write. And I was working on a book on the 1978 Yankees in the early 90s, mid 90s. I don't remember when it came out, but when Ken Burns' baseball documentary came out, it ended up scaring. Mid nineties, right? Think, so yeah. it scared the hell out of me because <laughs> I remember after the first episode aired and it was brilliant, it really knocked me off my feet. And then USA Today printed like thirty mistakes in it, <laughs> and these are. I mean, Ken Burns has got a hundred people working for him, and I know what it's yeah. like to work as a researcher. And so I thought, man, little old me. So. I kind of abandoned that project for a while, and then I, I wrote my first music book in 1995 when I spent some time with a rock and roll band in New Jersey, some of the guys I actually played in my band with. And I thought it'd be great to write a, a book about a band that didn't make it. And that book ended up being called, uh, called Deep Tank Jersey. And, you know, this is a club band, and in New Jersey, you could make really great money playing what I call the human jukebox, playing the hits, you know, and this was the big, the, the grunge in the indie period where we were coming out of the, you know, the heavy metal, uh, uh, big uh, songs era. So it was kind of fun to watch that shift and go in the clubs and watch that music take hold. So that, that got me into writing more music. And then I was asked to write for the Aquarian Weekly, which I am still an associate, I'm now an associate editor with. And I wrote, and I, that's when I started interviewing, uh, you know, musicians and rock stars and filmmakers and, that got me a lot of contacts to be able to, to write the books that I've been writing now. And I've been with Roman and Littlefield now for this is my third book with them uh, and specifically about music. I was even reading going back before that, that you were writing comic books with a buddy in your basement. I think he was the one that was drawing and you were coming up with the script behind it and just the uh, the idea that you could create these stories with these characters. And, and uh, I don't know how to necessarily connect those dots all the way to a book about sure. uh, Hey Jude, but I, I was thinking you probably can. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's everything's a domino effect in this life. I'm sure where you guys right. got to this point, whatever it is that you're, you know, not only the podcast, but where you are in your lives and your professional lives and your personal lives. And that was a huge awakening. That's why I said, you know, my eighth grade yearbook I wrote, they, you know, they ask you what you want to be with your life. And I'm always proud of the fact that I put writer because at that time and even before that, I think it was probably around 11 in my 
friend Chris Barrera was like nine, I think. And we were writing our and producing our own comic books and selling them. My dad would make the copies of the sheets and at work and bring them home. And we'd get a little, you know, like people have lemonade stands and we sell comic books. And we realized how we were touching people because, you know, if we didn't do an issue, if we didn't finish a storyline, someone, they, we would get bit. People would come to us and be like, come on. So it's like getting letters <laughs> to the editor, but getting it right in your face when you're like 11 years old. So that'll teach you to make deadlines. And if you're going to yeah. start something, you should damn well finish it. So, uh, yeah, I mean, Chris was... It, to this day, I, I I find in all the professional endeavors and all the creative endeavors I've done, those afternoons and evenings under that naked light on a black cardboard, the two of us together, was the most creative, raw, amazing experience for me. And it taught me everything it was about being collaborative, about coming up with something, not you know being disciplined. So all those things I think lead to writing a a book about one song. And, and I didn't want to leave my bit about doing uh, research aside without mentioning the great, the late great Roger Kahn, who was a huge mentor to me. And I, I ended up working for him for about a year plus. And Roger ended up taking a lot of my research for the 78 Yankee book for a book he wrote called October Men that came out years later when Roger and I weren't working anymore. And my first thought was, oh my God, Roger stole my idea. But then I read it and I realized Roger Khan should be writing this. He's much better than me and he's Roger Khan. So I'm, I'm proud to know that at least I inspired him to write that. And of course, Roger wrote one of the quintessential books in the history of sports writing, and that is The Boys of Summer about the 55 Dodgers. So again, when you have a chance to work with somebody of that caliber, you can't ignore the, the immense amount of influence that has on you. Yeah, you you did connect those dots very well. That's that's really cool. Well, thank you. <laughs> I was telling you my introduction to you was listening to your podcast and um, finding out that you and Adam Duritz had a podcast talking about music, and we were talking too that the very first episode that you guys did was called "Leaving Every Home," and I had just left my home. I had just left Seattle and moved to San Francisco, and so it, it was. It was, I was going to say doubly, it was probably triply influential for me because I was listening to this podcast thinking, wow, this is really cool. This is something I'd love to be able to do. It's got Adam Duritz, and I'm listening to anything Adam Duritz is doing <laughs> since I, I was a kid. And then the specifics of that episode of really connecting me to the fact that I had just left my home and how music can kind of weave in to a story of your life. And kind of without knowing, that's sort of what we've done with our podcast is, yeah, we're talking about music, but we're really talking about our lives and we're talking about people and how those things go together. Um, so before we get any deeper into the book and, and more about you, I did just want to say thank you for doing that with Adam, because that's I don't know that we'd all be sitting here without that. So that's the greatest compliment you can give anybody who does anything like that. And I think I told you before uh, you started recording and I'll share it here, Shane, when we decided to do that, you know, I'm working on a book with Adam and it's taking a lot longer because that's what happens when you write with rock stars. But, you know, but Adam is an excellent writer and that's what he started to add to our conversations concept. And it was so good that I don't think it can be a book without his real input. So when we stopped for a while, I went back to write out my portion of it, you know, go through the transcripts of the interviews, start to build out a narrative. And he started to call me up. And I said, well, I don't really want to see this guy because I want to be able to show him I've got this great 
this is what we're doing here. I didn't want to, I wanted to come back six months later, but I guess we really kind of connected and we spent a lot of time together. So he kind of missed me, I'm going to guess. And he started to call, hey, what if we did a podcast of what we used to do? Because when we were, and I said no to him at first because I didn't want anybody to to get inside of our transom, that 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 very special space that I, I created with him uh, where we were talking about his life and his creative you know, influences and all the things. And he said, no, 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 no. I want to do what we used to do when we would go off on these tangents and talk about films and talk about other people's music. And he was right. But we did two or three of these and he hated every one of them. I remember telling him, tell him, we're not doing what we used to do. We're trying to be podcasters. So that day when I came to do that, that first episode, I was visiting my daughter's class and there was a kid. Who, they, they, I, and the idea was I was a writer and I come in and read the kids essays. And he wrote this beautiful essay, this young kid, probably around the age that I was when I was doing the comic books with Christopher and talking about, oh, I have to move. I'm so depressed. And I moved a lot as a kid. And I know Adam moved a ton. Right. So right. I, that clicked at it. And I, on, on the drive down to New York City to record it, I said, I'm going to start with that. And I did. And we did go off on it. And it is a very good episode. And it's a great way to start that podcast. And he was, he as soon as he heard it, he said, okay, this is what I wanted. So it really turned out to be very, very lucky. So to hear you say that it was an inspiration for this or that it got you through a tough time, I really appreciate that. Thanks. I have to add to that as well and say that I, I've really enjoyed the podcast that you and Adam do Thanks. that I've listened to so far. I haven't uh, checked out as many episodes as Trevor, but thanks to him and this connection that he, he's made with you, I, I went back and uh, picked an episode. I'm not sure. I probably started somewhere in the middle. I uh, listened to It Could Be Worse, It Could Be Raining. I don't know which episode <laughs> that either. was, but it, it was a really good one. You guys talked a lot about Paul Simon, who I'm, big, I'm a big fan of, so I appreciated that, but... I really liked the loose conversational uh, piece to it. it. It felt kind of unscripted, but it came together organically. You know, the two of you really complement each other well. I think your your personalities are similar enough, yet good differences, you know, I think that, that make it a really good contrast. And uh, you guys are really enjoyable, uh, entertaining to listen to. So I, I'm excited to go back and listen to some more episodes. Thanks. In the future. Yeah, I, I think that was the one we were talking about, Hearts and Bones, which is... Yeah, yeah, definitely. Those yep. shows are yeah, completely not scripted. I mean, once in a while I would walk in the apartment and he would say, Let's do let's do a show about Rod Stewart. And we ended up doing like three shows. And even those are not scripted. Like you know, uh, but we you know we did a whole series on punk music, on Prince, uh, on Woodstock, but that that one was that is a good one because yeah, that's a situation where Adam and I had no idea that both of us absolutely adore that record. And that record was a huge flop for him. And I think we mentioned on the podcast, it was because everybody expected. And I remember it because I went to the Central Park show where they got back together and everybody thought there was going to be a new Paul Simon and, uh, you know, a Simon and Garfunkel record. And Paul started writing these really, really personal songs about him and Carrie Fisher, and it just didn't work. And I just finished reading uh, a, a biography on Paul Simon I think Robert Hilburn's uh, biography. And that was a tough for Paul because he really, everybody always thought, oh, Paul didn't want to do this with Garfunkel, but that wasn't true. He really did. It just didn't work out. So, uh, but I'm so glad in retrospect that he didn't do it with Garfunkel because those songs are just so painfully, I mean, it took, makes total sense that Adam Duritz would love a record like that. And 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 it was really, it, it, I remember really embracing that when it first came out. And it was one of those things where you're like, why doesn't anyone love this? How does this not, you know what I mean? It's Paul Simon. It, these songs are so great. 
So, yeah, I mean, that's what the fun of that podcast, as I'm sure when you guys, you know, dive into these records and every piece of minutiae, I mean, what's better than that? Again, you know, it's, it's fun to be on with nuts. So if you guys dig that, that I appreciate you, You're in the right spot. <laughs> I mean, sometimes the best pieces of art, whether we're talking about music, writing, a painting, sculpture, is not appreciated at the magnitude it should by, by the masses. But for those who really spend a lot of time in that, in that space they tend to gravitate towards some of those unique albums or pieces of art or, or writings that, that maybe don't touch some people, but you know, amongst a select few scholars or people who, who, who really, uh, you know, tout themselves as being, you know, somebody who should be critiquing that stuff, you know, they tend to think it's really good. And I don't know, maybe that has something to do with what you were saying about Paul Simon's album not being a hit, despite the fact that, you know, anybody who knows good music and, and appreciates good songwriting would say like, duh, yes, it, it was. It, it clearly was a good piece of art. Right, and even with people who don't study it, like I, I just found out, you know, I've been married now for, I don't know, like since 1999, so do the math. I don't know what the hell that is, 23 years or something. And, um, you know, I, my sister-in-law, you know, my wife's sisters are big music fans and we listen to music all the time, but I had no idea that her sister Lauren loved the record, Marillion's record, Misplaced Childhood, which is a record I love from the mid eighties. And it's one of those things like, nobody loves that record. Like, that's crazy. <laughs> Soon as she said that, I had a completely different viewpoint of her and her musical taste and like what, what you know, music meant to her, even though I know she does love music and she's very connected to it, but I'm like, holy crap, she loves that record. So th there's something about when someone loves a song or a record that no one else loves and you connect with them. It's just, there's something different about that. There's just something different. And then on the complete other end of the spectrum, there's something about a song that everybody or an album that everybody connects with. Nice segue, Trevor. <laughs> yeah. took, took the words out of my mouth. I was, I was thinking the same. There, there's, there's some music and, and art forms that, that are super good that uh, not everybody catches on to or appreciates, but then there's others like Hey Jude where, <laughs> Everybody agrees it's a masterpiece and it stands the test of time and, and lives on forever. There's so many reasons why this song does, but I was just really curious as we transition to talking about this book with you here, James. What is it for you personally about this song? Because that's, that's what this is all about, I think. That's my perspective in reading your book was about that, about how it's universal and how it's very specific. And I want to talk about the universal, but we got you on the show. I want to talk about the specific first. What is it for you? about this song that inspired you to write this book? Well, I've interviewed dozens and dozens of really successful musicians and songwriters, songwriters specifically, and I interviewed a ton of them for this book. And I think every person who's, you know, journalists, fellow music writers, and specifically songwriters will tell you the best part of a song is that it can be universal and personal at the same time. Uh, I wrote about Warren Zevon in my last book, and I thought that Warren did a great job in taking the most urbane subject matter and making it relatable, which is really heavy lifting. Paul McCartney takes things that are completely rote, like love songs, or in this case, a song of comfort. I call it comfort and unity and make it completely relatable where it's a giant, everybody can sing it, everyone, it's the Beatles, it's a massive, massive AM hit. It's a song he still plays today to great fanfare, but yet so many people had these personal feelings about this song. And when I interviewed them all, I was taken aback. I mean, I went into this project with the idea of, I pitched it to my publisher. It's gonna be professors of all these different disciplines, psychology, sociology, musicology, philosophy, and, I, and history. 
and songwriters and, and biographers and music journalists and just ask them. And it is just amazing how much a song like this. I mean, I was surprised, but to answer your question more directly, I was inspired. People say, well, why Hey Jude? And when I was a kid, however old I was in 1968, 69, um, six, seven years old, I remember singing the na-na's to help me sleep whenever I'd wake up with a nightmare. You know, you drive your parents crazy. My daughter used to do it too. You know, they come in and then they come in once and you could, I'm having, I see ghosts and they come in a second time. And it's like, if I have to come in here one, you know what I mean? And uh, <laughs> so by the third time, na, 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 na kind of got me through the night. And I think as yeah. I've got older, I realized how really important that is and how songs can do that. And then when people telling me just the very lyrics of the, the ballad part of the song, how inspiring and comforting that is, uh, you put the two together and you throw a pandemic in there and everything that was going on in 2020 when I wrote the book between the you know the Black Lives Matter and the street protests and riots. And then at the end of the year, obviously the, the situation at the Capitol and everything that was going on that year, everybody kept saying, oh, is this, is this the craziest year since 1968? This is the craziest year since 1968. And I'm living in 1968, August of 68, when Hey Jude comes out. And so yeah, wow. there is the combination of my childhood, this sense of comfort, and then I think a lot of people like myself were still scared. It's, you know, we look back now at 2020 and it really is in the rearview mirror and we're still dealing with the outs, you know, the, the outlining or the outlay of, of COVID, but it's nothing like we were all in. That was damn scary. And yeah. I spent that time writing about mm -hmm. this song and it really got, writing about the song got me through the way singing that song at nine years old got me through the night that kind of thing. Wow. Yeah. Oh, and, wow. and what yeah, a cool example awesome. of how something continues. I mean, you, you touch on a lot of examples of that in the book, people of all different ages and, and, uh, walks of life that have a personal connection. And you've had at least two, you know, just in that story, you know, you, you as a child singing yourself to sleep and then now getting you through as an adult during 2020, it's, it's the song continues to have life year after year, even in the same person. That's, that's pretty cool. Yeah. The last thing I want to say is that right before I started the book and I end the book with it, I had pitched the book in May of 2019 and my publisher didn't really get back to me. They were being, their backbeat books were being, I think, absorbed by, we're now Roman and Littlefield prior to that, we're Hal Leonard. So they weren't really, they were in transition. So they weren't really getting back to me. And my father got sick and he passed in October of 2019. Then they got back to me a little after that. And I was kind of helping my mom through it and helping her move. And I was traveling back and forth to North Carolina. So I kind of told them I can't do this right now. And then when it was over and the pandemic hit in, in March, it, it, I felt like it was the right time. But the weird thing was, the, and I, this is very true. So my dad was sick and I went to visit him in the hospital. And then when I got off the plane to come back to Jersey, my brother called and said, it looks like that's it. He's going to pass. And I couldn't get back on. The, I just couldn't physically. I was so fried. I was there for like a week. You know, where you, when someone is sick, like my dad was, it's like one minute. Oh, he's good. His numbers look good. He's going to pull through. Then like an hour later, uh, yeah, you better prepare. Oh, no. And it was a roller coaster for a whole family. So I was just totally emotionally shot. And so I didn't, I couldn't think of going back. So my mom and my brother put me on the phone, you know, to say our last you know, goodbyes to my dad. Right before my brother called, the last song I heard before my father passed was Hey Jude. It just popped up. And if that isn't a sign from some weird ethereal plane, I don't know what is. I am not, I would not call myself a spiritual man, uh, certainly not a religious man. 
Uh, and I don't believe in the, you know, a lot of the stuff that a lot of people do believe in and I don't begrudge in that, but that was very strange and very good. And once again, Hey Jude being there to, to comfort. And I ended up, hmm. you know, uh, dedicating the book to my, my late dad. Yeah. I'm really glad you included that in the book. That was, that was very touching hmm. to yeah. see that Thanks. personal connection. And, and, uh, I, I agree with everything you said about not really knowing for sure about spirituality and all these powerful forces of, of, of nature and the world around us. But sometimes things like that happen. And it's, it's hard to deny that there, there was some, some type of outside force or something, um, whatever that may be, you know, that kind of made, made those events um, happen in that time. Yeah. And Paul calls it magic. And in the, in the chapter that I write about, you know, how the song works, you know, I, I spent a couple of paragraphs talking about how Paul says, and I read, I spent, 10 months reading everything I could about Paul McCartney. Uh, I never considered reaching out to him because Paul tends to be stuck in that. And it's, first of all, he's Paul McCartney, but he tends to be stuck mm -hmm. in that. He's the stories he tells. And I, I felt like he's, he's had so many interviews since the age of 21, 22. And I went through all the biographies and I, and I, and I interviewed for the book, all his biographers. And the one thing he says over and over and over again about songwriting, about what music did for him as a kid, about what happened with the Beatles, about the piano he played it on, about the one take that Hey Jude is, magic, 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 magic. So it does infuse itself to the story of this of this a wonderful, wonderful song. It really does. I wanted to comment on your your choice of the word uh, relatable uh, because <laughs> that's that's the first thing that came to my mind as well. Um, you know, reading about the history of, of Hey Jude, knowing that it was their most successful number one hit it spent nine weeks at number one on the u.s charts and to think they had 20 number one hits over the course of their 10 year year span of making music at a really fast pace i had to, to sit back and think what is it about this song that has made it stand the test of time and the best answer i could come up with is that it's and this is straight from my notes here it's fun uh, meaningful easy to sing along and most importantly it's very relatable and I think that's why it spans so many generations, despite the fact that it developed from a personal connection of relationships between Paul and John's son, Julian, and also Paul and John, and, and Paul and John and their significant others at the time, and, and so much that was going on uh, politically, I think, is some undertones that you, you mentioned um, during the year 1968. But D despite it being about those specific events, it's still very relatable because the the lyrics are general enough and, and the sentiment of the song is is meaningful enough that it that it really speaks to a lot of people. And I think the main reason, uh, you know, or the lyrics that are most powerful are the um, you know the line where it says, "In any time you feel pain, hey Jude, refrain, don't carry the world upon your shoulders." You know, that's something that people always have to deal with. And, you know, whether it's 1968 or, or the time that we're going through right now with the pandemic and everything happening in the world, or even if anybody looks within their own life, within that small uh, snapshot of the world, their personal world, those lyrics, those words always speak to, you know, everybody uh, on some level. So I, I think that's why this song, you know, really hits people and will probably, you know, do that forever. I mean, I know we'll probably go into some more of the lyrics. That's an excellent stanza there, certainly. But... I love the fact that it's a it's a song that's that empowers the listener 
And in this case, the, the person that Paul is addressing this to, the, the mystical Jude, uh, unlike, and I think I talk about that, I know I talk about this in the book, unlike John Lennon's great um, general relatable statements like, all you need is love or imagine, those are, those are grandiose, and I use that term positively, they're grandiose statements about the Vox Populi, you know, the entire zeitgeist of what the Beatles were talking to, how important the Beatles were. Paul is kind of saying, yeah, you really, you could do this. It, it's, it's you. When he says, you'll do. In the same song, he's like, hey, we're, we're right here with you. I'm right here with you. I'm going to get you through this. And at the same time, he's saying, you got this. You don't need me. You don't need some fancy, you know, fill in the blank, right? Political ideology. You don't need big groups. You don't need the Beatles. It, it's kind of like Paul is saying in a way what John said with God. I don't believe in, but obviously in a much friendlier and open way, you, you don't need what John was saying in his very caustic John way is you don't need these things. He was expunging himself of this worship he had for Elvis and Bob Dylan and all these things. And, and, and in, a, in a very friendly way, Paul is saying, yeah, you don't need all of those accoutrements. You have it within you to do it in the same song where he's saying, you don't have to carry the world on your shoulders. We can help you out with this. And it is a, uh, it is a fascinating, fascinating juxtaposition of what Paul does there. And this is Paul McCartney, by the way, who has been given endless amounts of shit for being trite and fay and writing the silly love songs. <laughs> and to, to, to the day he died, and Lennon loved to bash Paul McCartney for his you know granny songs, quote unquote, and other things, never always said, hey, Jude is a damn great piece of lyrics, and he should be lauded for that. And I agree with John. Yeah, I learned so much from reading your book, but I didn't know he liked it immediately when Paul had played it for him. And we were talking a second ago about the difference between lyrics that are very, very specific, where you know exactly what they're saying, and ones that are just so vague and cryptic that you just don't know where to insert yourself anywhere, and how this song walks such that perfect line in balancing those two things. I, I have to mention, I think that's something that Adam Duritz does such a great job with as well, with those specifics. I know that he was told not to put specifics in his song and ended up doing it, but he leaves enough window, both of, both writers here leave enough window for you to put yourself in there, and I think that's what, I, I learned this from reading your book too, that's what John did. He, he heard the line, I think... Um, you found her now and go and get her. Yes, you found her now go, go and get her, assuming that that was Paul writing about Yoko. You have found her, now go and get her. Yes, yeah, I mean, to that point, think about, I mean, this is, you bring up an excellent point, Trevor. This is, this is the thing that dove, again, me deeper into Hey Jude. Yeah, I loved the song when I was a kid. I love the song. I think it's my favorite Beatles song. As Shane mentioned earlier, I was shocked to find out it was the longest running hit in the, you know, mm -hmm. number one hit in America when America really needed it because the rest of the world was blowing up in 68. But God, we were going through some tough times here. But it's, it's really a story of John and Paul, these two teenage kids who lose their moms and find in each other this amazing support and love of rock and roll music in its nascent stages when nobody really knew what the hell rock and roll was. And they knew, quite naturally, they knew. And they connected and, and were two of arguably the greatest songwriting team that, or, you know, in the 20th century, certainly in the latter half of the 20th century. And all of this is in Hey Jude to the point where John says, you're writing about me. You're telling me I, he's finding Yoko. 
And at the same time, John is fine and Paul is finding Linda. I, that that also shocked me. I, it never occurred to me. All the Beatle books I I'd read and the documentaries, it never occurred to me. These two men found the two women that we would be with until Linda died in '98 and John died in 1980, within maybe 60 days of each other, and then they marry these women within about eight days of each other, and all around Hey Jude. Unbelievable. Yeah. And we all know he wrote it for his son. Right to comfort him, but you, there's no way you can't tell me that Paul was not celebrating meeting a woman that he absolutely knew he loved. That was the love of his life, and John knew Yoko was the completest aspect to his life, and how both these guys had been searching for this female connection. Listen to the early Beatles songs. All of them are about can I find that woman? Will I let her down? Will she let me down? You know, John lost his mother in a violent, violent way. She was hit by, a, by an off-duty cop. And, and Paul's mother died like that. You know, one minute she's helping them and going off to work, and the next minute, because back in then, they didn't do that. You, you sent your, your sick parent off for a couple of weeks. And next thing you know, Paul's visiting this woman, and she's got hours to live. I mean, that is – and they, they connected on that, searched for that, those women. And then he, Jude, kind of – so when John hears that, it makes perfect sense to me. He's like, there's my buddy. We did it. We found that woman. Let yourself find the love that we've been missing. God, I love that. I love that part of that song. And I don't think there's, I know as a music journalist, I'm pushing envelopes here. But guys, I don't think I am on this. I don't think so either. And sometimes I think that Paul, for instance, in this example, thought he knew exactly what he was writing about. And I don't know how much of it he knew was about Linda or how much of he thought Yoko was mixed in there. Maybe more than more than I think. But I wonder if it's after it's out that you sort of analyze it afterwards and kind of go, oh, that actually that's coming from a very specific thing in me that I didn't realize I was even trying to convey. And in your writing process for this book, I was just curious, you know, all the research and all the details how much of it do you know before you're putting pen to paper, metaphorically speaking at this point, I suppose, and how much of it is you decided you wanted to write the song, or decided you wanted to write about the song, and then discovering these things along the road as you write the book? That's the best question you can ask somebody like myself who does that. You know, I just tell my wife today, I just started working on the idea of a new writing project, and I said, this is the exciting time because you have all these ideas, you have all these theories and thesis, and then you start interviewing people. <clears throat> you start reading up on this stuff. You start, things start to reveal themselves to you. And a book doesn't just, you start a book, but it, a book reveals itself to you. And it, it eventually you go, okay, this is where this is going. Um, so I would, in the case of Hey Jude, I had almost none of this. All that stuff popped up and I thought, oh, that's right. I did find though, I was always fascinated as a young mu music journalist in the Paul John dynamic, the fact that they lost their mothers and that really connected them. And John was very open about it. I mean, he called Yoko mother up until the day he died. Uh, he, he writes a song about his mother called Julia and he calls her in the song Ocean Child, which is in Japanese is Yoko Ono. And he, he's very aware of that loss and connection. He even says, and I think I quote it in the book, you know, the Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds or all these different people are these, these, these super women in the sky that I'm trying to grasp at. I can't get. And Yoko filled that. 
Paul is less so. Paul, everything just comes to Paul quickly. He's, but I also think that the, the, one of the people I interviewed for the book said that Paul works very well when he's in his subconscious. And that's where John worked all the time. So he recognized right away that Hey Jude had a lot of stuff, which is why John's favorite line in the song is uh, the movement you need is on your shoulder. That's the line I was trying to say. Which yep. is absolutely means nothing and everything. And that was the, the most fun in the book is having everyone interpret that line. And I hope everybody that reads it has an idea of what that line might mean, what it might have meant for Paul, what it might have meant for John, what it might have meant for the Beatles as a whole, what it might have meant for the, for the young kids who had grown up with the Beatles in 1968. You know, to me, when you're writing a book like this, it all starts to reveal itself. And you just can't wait. You, you find a way to put it into the narrative because it becomes so important. But I started with the premise specifically that I was always fascinated with the John Paul dynamic. And the fact that, and I know a lot of people have written about this and spoken about it, how much Paul really did write about women from the standpoint of the woman's perspective, whether it's your mother should know, Lady Madonna, Eleanor Rigby, and Hey Jude is not a song about a woman, but he certainly is telling Jude, which is a male name, hey, you've got to make yourself vulnerable for love. Uh, and I think that's how you become a star, maybe in the rock and roll idiom, is you put on the armor so you're not easily hurt. Because when you put yourself out there to do anything, guys, and you know this, there's going to be booing and there's going to be rejection and there's going to be you can't make it and you stink and blah, blah, blah. you got to have that. you got to have that tough armor on them. And, and in a way, in 1968, what Paul is saying now, he's found Linda and John has found Yoko. we got to let this shit go. Let it out and let it in. Hey Jude, begin. So let it out and let it in. That that to me is is almost scriptal. It's almost like you know something out of uh, a psalm in a sense. You know, it's it's very very. I call it comforting, but it's it's very inspirational. It really is. Yeah, and it's kind of like a call to action. And I always thought that that's what the Nanas felt like. The ballad-heavy first half at first look feels very intimate and personal. But that's the part that everybody can extrapolate these various personal meanings from. And so in a way, it's almost the most universal part. But then you get to the end where everybody's doing the na-na's and then it's just like, you got your interpretation over there. You got your interpretation over there. But once we all st sing na-na-na, we're, we're all saying part. the same thing right, now. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's no words, right? It's no, there's no words. So yeah. the other thing I would say is, the thing that always intrigued me, people say, well, what about a day in the life? What about she loves you or I want to hold your hand? These are massive culture shifting songs. What about yesterday? Uh, you know, the second or first most covered song in the history of pop music. But to me, Hey Jude makes no freaking sense. There's no real chorus. The, 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 the coda of the song is longer than the structured song. And it has tinges of gospel tinges of folk, tinges of really going back to old classical sort of liturgical themes. And it's just a fun sing-along song the way like, you know, All Together Now is, or We All Live in a Yellow Submarine. It's, it's it, you know what I mean? The, the difference between its depth and its flimsy sort of fun shallowness is incredible. So I think it's much more fun. I think it was Eric Hutchinson, a great singer-songwriter and a good friend of mine who said, Think about Hey Jude. When, when someone, I ask you guys, how does Hey Jude go? Hey Jude, da, 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 da. That's the first line. 
He's got you. He's yeah. got you. When you say, how does I want to hold your hand? I want to hold your, that you have to go through a couple of verses before you get there. This song makes no sense. And that's what the Beatles, the Beatles were like Frank Zappa as a pop artist. Like they put stuff on the charts that is completely weird. And if I may quote my, my good friend, Adam Duritz, he said the Beatles were like backwards, sideways weirdos who somehow appealed to everyone. A lot of their best hits make no sense. And this one makes zero, it's seven <laughs> minutes in a period where if you did anything more than two minutes and, and 30 seconds, you're screwed. And I know it's the yep. Beatles and John said, if it was us, they'll do it, but still. And the second half of the song that has no lyrics goes on for four and a half minutes when the regular song is only three minutes. Yeah. And it doesn't have a chorus. Where's the chorus? And it's touching. And then <laughs> at the end of it, he's kind of doing this. It's just like, that doesn't go together. Who who would start with a, a lullaby comfort to a child and end with kind of the, this scratchy voice scream? You're right. I never thought of it that way, but it does make no sense. But it somehow makes a bunch of sense. You know what, what you're saying about it being a, a lullaby uh, in a sense and kind of yeah. calming and and whatnot at the beginning, I think that's sort of what draws you in. You, you feel like, you know, you have to pay attention. It grabs your attention. It's, it's slow and it's a little melancholy, but, but for some reason you're intrigued by what he has to say, you know, for a song to start with, you know, addressing somebody, Hey Jude, almost like it, like it's a letter. You're like, okay, what is it? What is he going to tell this guy? What, what is this all about? You know? And so then you're listening and it starts to pick up and you get a little intrigued. I think they, they grab your attention enough that you stick around until the transition when it you know becomes fun and lively and entertaining and it's rock and roll and all of a sudden it's a party and there's something about you know we haven't touched on the music yet we're talking a lot about the lyrics but you know the 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 song itself starts out rather melancholy and you know like not only are the lyrics saying take a sad song and, and make it better you know in a sense this song kind of starts out a little little sad and by the end it it gets better <laughs> and uh you know, by the end, we're all we're all singing along, and it's just this this rock concert atmosphere of everybody singing the na-nas, and just not only do the lyrics tell you that, the music also kind of moves you from that that sad feeling to, you know, hey, there's a there's a light at the end of the tunnel. We can kind of take this feeling and flip it upside down, and you know, you don't have to carry the weight of the world on your shoulders. It can get better, and we're gonna get through this. And that's where that that collaboration really comes together, and you feel like. You know, you're not alone in the fight that everybody can kind of come together. So well said, you know, um, and again, the Beatles had in 1968, I think any Beatle aficionado will tell you had plateaued. There was other things going on in the world that sort of uh, usurped some of their primacy in the pop world. And they had come off the, you know, their apex, which is Sgt. Pepper's the year before, and they were having a tough time making the white album and they went in and did this is the other thing i found out in the course of making this book and it never occurred to me and, and one of the people i interviewed mentioned it to me and it's this is the last song the beatles recorded as a mm. single with all four of them because i think the ballad of john and yoko is, is the two of them and then after that it was all album tracks from let it be sessions and then and abbey road this is the last time they went in to record just a single which you know as you guys mentioned, a lot of the, the, those 20 hits in America and more in England were singles without being on albums, at least not European albums. That you know, Yesterday is not on a, was not a single in Europe. It, some of these songs weren't even on albums and Hey Jude is not, I mean, Hey, John, hey Jude was put on an album later 
after the band broke up in 1970, the Hey Jude album, but it was a single and they came in. So it's what you're saying. It was true of the Beatles too. They were going through tough times. The country, the whole generation, the boomer generations was going through tough times. And the same people who helped America through the Kennedy assassination in 19, late 1963, they came in 64 and played the Ed Sullivan show in February of 64, are the same guys going on TV and saying, it's going to be okay. And that means a great deal. And it meant a great deal to Paul. Paul, uh, more than anybody in the Beatles knew, specifically, his band was teetering on being over. I think John felt like he was excited about Yoko, and if it had to go, it had to go. And then later on, he was like, I'm done. Ringo, I don't think, ever really thought it was going to end. He was just happy to be with the guys. Why wouldn't they want to be in this huge act? And George was, you know, having his spiritual awakening. So he was kind of on his own island. Paul's the one guy sitting in there going, what the hell's going on? And he puts it in this song and he, and he expresses it to his friends. So his letter, Hey Jude, is to the guys in the band. It's to his generation. It's to Linda. It's to Yoko. And it's to his teenage buddy, John, who he's going to lose to a to a woman that really shook his world. Mm, yeah, yeah, there's so many parts to that, and I can see how that would be. That's enough to write a book about a song, for sure. If somebody can do it. <laughs> Maybe I'm grasping. Yeah, you know, it's funny. <laughs> I, I talked to, you know, I think I'm the seventh or eighth. I read every book written about one song. So there's like, I think there's six or seven of them. There's only six or seven books written about one song? Correct. Wow, okay. I'd really yes. love to know what the other the other six. Well, are. there was the ones that I can now. I always forget her name, but a, uh, there was a wonderful book about White Christmas that Eric Hutchinson had lent to me when he knew I was doing this. He was like, "Here, read this," and it was beautiful. His White Christmas is is the biggest hit ever of any time, any time ever. And it's amazing when you think about there were no secular songs before White Christmas. There was a Christmas came, and there was carols, and there were religious songs. That's it. Now, the fifty songs that came after White Christmas was because of White Christmas's success and because the brilliance of Irving, Irving Berlin to understand that. Hmm. And the fact that a Jew wrote the greatest Christmas song of all time also is an amazing story, backstory that is covered beautifully in that book. But yeah, White Christmas is the biggest song ever. And it was number one, like for six years. So in other words, every year Christmas would come, everyone would buy, it kept going to number one every year. And that, that's why you get all the Christmas songs we know during World War II were all because of White Christmas. There was mm -hmm. no secular songs about snow and Santa and Rudolph until White Christmas. So that is an amazing story. She did an amazing job. I recommend that book to anyone. Dave Marsh wrote a wonderful book about Louie Louie. I love oh, wow. Dave. He's one of my heroes. Grail Marcus, who is a big influence of mine and who luckily became, I became friendly with him during this. By the way, you mentioned earlier that no one like everyone loves Hey Jude. Not Grail Marcus. <laughs> so that was that the one you quoted in the book where you you said somebody you quoted that you said who freely admits this is not his favorite song. Yeah, was that, no, that yeah. was Tom Brennan. Uh, okay, uh, I remember there was somebody yeah, yeah. in there. Yeah, there's a few people that don't like Hey Jude for for several reasons we could talk about it if you want. But I mean, so Grail Marcus is a great hero of mine. He wrote a book about uh, like a Rolling Stone called uh, uh, Bob Dylan at the Crossroads. Uh, a good friend of mine who was really great and and he wrote a wonderful book about uh, Purple Rain, the making of the film Purple Rain. Alan Light wrote a book about hallelujah called the lonely and the broken i think he read my manuscript and he gave me a great blurb for the back of the book oh wow he was an inspiration you know he's like he would always write like it's just to a fellow nut like i was saying with you guys like you know yeah. because you embark on this it's a very small group of us who've done this i, I know i'm leaving a few out but there's really only i also read a book about uh, somewhere over the rainbow 
right before I started this, actually, which was one of the inspirations, I wrote a long piece for what was then the Dog Door Cultural, but now is part of the Pittsburgher, uh, about Somewhere Over the Rainbow, which I think is the greatest song ever written. And it was like a 5,000 word piece. So it's not a whole book. But I realized later on that someone had written a book about it. Oh, wow. So there's, it's a very, very small group of lunatics. That's crazy. I didn't realize there was that, that you were in such a small company with that. Mm-hmm. That's cool. I want to quote something from your book, uh, if I may, because it ties into a lot of what we were talking about uh, a few minutes ago with, um, you know, the sing-along, na-na-na, without, you know, having a, a language barrier and, and uh, things of that nature. Um, early in the, in the book, when you're dissecting the song, you know, stanza by stanza, which is an awesome way to open the book, uh, you know, by, by the way, um, you know, it really draws you in because for somebody who maybe just knows this song and can sing along because they enjoy it and it's fun, it's a radio hit, but hasn't really thought about the depth, uh, you know, or the storylines behind it, immediately your, your book grabs the audience's attention by breaking it down and saying like, hey, this is more than just some fun pop song. There, there's, a, there's a lot of depth uh, to it as, as a side note, but... Um, you go on, you say, you. and it's it's brilliant writing as well, I may say, which is why I wanted to, to quote this here. Uh, seven you. notes comprising a single phrase. Everyone knows it. Consider that for a moment. Everyone, all over the planet, anthemic, a mantra. For over half century, it has been a communal celebration of song with no language barrier, infectious, commanding, unforgettable in its simplicity. Nah. Nah, 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 you know, and then we go on and on. <laughs> it's almost hard. It's almost hard to Thank you. to read those lyrics without wanting to, to break in to sing it, right? Like, <laughs> that, right. that's kind of a, a weird yeah, thing, I don't right? know how we do the audio book. Yeah, how yeah, are we yeah, supposed yeah, to do yeah, an yeah. audio book of this? Yeah, I know, it's a good point. Nah, 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 nah. Thank but you yeah, for I, reading I, that, I love that, that part that's just, very nice. just because, you know, like that is something that, that ties this song uh, together and makes it something that, everybody can can relate to even if they don't know english even if they don't know the the words just the sentiment of the song and how it breaks out into that excitement and joy at the end you know that collection of everybody coming together and being able to sing along there's just something really you know unique about a song that can do that where everybody feels moved uh to sing yeah thanks i appreciate that it was nice hearing that back i it, that whole first part that uh that you read there um i i didn't change much of that I kept that. That was sort of my treatment to the publisher. Like, hey, what do you think of this? And I thought it was kind of like bad mojo to change it. A lot, you know, and and um, I had wonderful copy editors on this book. Probably the best I've ever had. And that's saying something because I've been very lucky in my career. And um, no one asked me to change like the opening thing of, of writing about the song and, you know, describing the song, which as Elvis Costello I think is attributed to this quote, writing about music is about, is like dancing about architecture. Um, <laughs> you know, it's really hard. So uh, it, to, to do that and then have that opening. So that whole opening, probably the first four paragraphs, I never changed. So the fact that it, it touched Shane and then he read it, 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 it makes me feel great because it was exactly what I was trying to convey. It was my first thought, best thought, Jack Kerouac kind of thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. So for him to get that, it's good. It, thank you. And, and the fact that you guys dig it and I know how much you love music and you spend all this time breaking down albums coming from you guys, it means a great deal. It really does. Uh, we Thanks. appreciate that so much. And 
you know, obviously listen to this song so much. We, when we dive into an album and really try to dissect it and learn more about it, we're, we're kind of figuring it out as we go. And believe it or not, the Beatles, there's a lot of stones unturned for us. We're going to, we're going to jump into Sgt. Pepper as our next album because of, um, because of this. Of course. Uh, you know, again, it's a, it's a real kick when you do, when you work on a book, like I said, it's a really lonely endeavor, but it was exponentially more so because of the, the, uh, the pandemic. And I loved being, being able to see my daughter every day. That was the real gift of this terrible, terrible thing that happened to the whole world. Um, to be able to see my daughter and my wife every day as much as I did, but to hear these voices come from the outside, all the people I interviewed, I can't thank them enough. All the professors, all the Beatle experts, the authors I've gotten to know who have been so, so supportive. And, um, you know, it was a real, I can't say labor of love. I think my earlier work always was because I didn't have any money coming in for it, but <laughs> it was definitely one of those things where I felt like I was out on an island. So to be able to come on and do these kind of podcasts with people who are really into music and hear you guys moved by it, the subtitle to the book is The Emotional Currency I wanted to ask of Hey that. Jude. Please, please do. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, I was I was just really, really intrigued uh, by that and, and was, was curious what that meant to you, uh, you know, um, removed from Hey Jude, and then why you decided to apply that idea uh, to the song, how that all wraps up. Well, thank you. Yeah, I wanted to get that in um, because, okay, so for me, the, the emotional currency of all the Beatles songs, and, and Paul mentions it, I, I quote him at the end of the book, where he says, I'm really happy that after all these years, I look back and the Beatles catalog are all positive, mostly positive songs about love, togetherness, understanding, certainly Paul's are, but there is an emotional currency to the Beatles that I don't think, and I'm a Stones guy. When people say Beatles, Stones, Beatles, Stones, I'm a Stones guy. Uh, I, I, I don't like the Beatles as much as I like Prince. Uh, there are many artists that I uh, have grown up with and enjoy, but there's something about the Beatles that do have an emotional currency that go beyond generations, that go beyond gender, that go beyond race and different, that they, that people said, yes, I dig this. And, and the songs speak to them more. Also, the very literal definition of currency is that it pays off. And if there was one, one phrase that came out of almost every, especially songwriters, is the payoff. That song from the very moment when he says, Hey Jude, which by the way, the Beatles did brilliantly putting the, the title of the song in the first two seconds, <laughs> it leads to the nanas. When he goes, you know, when he plays that little bridge, You know, he does that part. He's like, here we go. It's coming. And everybody knows the song is coming. If you've heard it once, you've heard it a million times. And we can't wait for that. So the payoff, the currency, the emotional currency of, hey, Jude, hang in there. Take a sad song and make it better. It's coming. As you said earlier, Trevor, it's coming. Here's the payoff. So it's an emotional currency through time. And the fact that Paul is still out there and he's torn. I'm sure when people hear this podcast, he'll be in America doing shows. It's just amazing. He could still transfix an audience. And I remember in 1989, when I saw him at Madison Square Garden uh, for the Flowers of the Dirt, I had never been in a room with the Beatle. I had never seen Paul. Paul did not play any Beatles songs up until 89, really. I mean, hmm. he played, I've just seen a face in yesterday in 76. But for the most part, he did not play Beatles songs. And when he played Hey Jude, 
and you see Madison Square Garden with 20-something thousand people, and every, I mean everybody, grandparents, kids, all the people, the cool guy who doesn't sing when they say sing, it doesn't matter. They just stripped it down, and everybody sang it. To me, that's the ultimate emotional currency that song can do. I wanted the book to not just be about Hey Jude, but about how songs affect us. Go ahead, substitute another song. Please, take, when you read my book, substitute another song. You know, I wrote a book about the historical Jesus back in the early aughts, and I always said, if you read the Gospel of John that says, I am the way, I am the, the blah, blah, if you substitute the word I for we, you get so much more out of that. Because it's like saying, we can, we're this, we're that. We're, it, there's, a, there's a connective tissue to all of that. And in a very divisive time right now, where every damn thing is polarized. Yeah. How much do we need that sentiment? I mean, I think yeah. everybody said we kind of need that now, don't we? And so to me, that's the emotional currency of Hey Jude specifically. But I think the emotional currency of what song does mm. for us as fans, music journalists, podcasters, and just people who they're driving along and a really long drive. It's late at night and Hey Jude comes on the radio. Man, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Yeah. You know, what a great way to describe a song like Hey Jude that continues to pay dividends decades later, yes. you know, to, to tie in a, another uh, currency uh, reference there. I, I hadn't thought about that, but there is something more powerful than the initial writing of the song. It, it keeps It keeps growing and keeps impacting others who then, you know, are inspired to go interact with other people and share. And that's where that collaborative piece of the song and how it has continued to unify people is really special. And that's another thing that I wanted to mention about your book that I, I really appreciated was the fact that you, you consulted with so many other musicians, music scholars, historians, professors, you know, you, you yourself have so many great thoughts to share, you know, on this song, and I'm sure could have written it without all of those perspectives. But bringing that into your book parallels the song because, you know, as you've as you've mentioned, the song, especially the the Nana section of, of the song that we've talked a lot about, really emphasize that idea of togetherness and that uh, you know you say a, a tribal call, you know, kind of like a a pep talk, a, a self-examination, a song of hope, you know, bringing people together. And by including all of those other people's perspective and, and experiences surrounding this song and the, their idea of what it means to them and why it's so important, almost brought that idea even more to life, the, the togetherness and, and collaborative nature of, you know, what, what the song Hey Jude was saying, but then also in, in your book uh, of getting everybody's opinion in there. It felt like a more complete you know piece of art of work that that uh you know does the song justice because it's more than it's more than about that one person or the writer of the song it's about affecting everybody and that's kind of what your book does by bringing in everybody else um you know along for the ride yeah thanks and look look as a writer forget me being a writer i'm just an inquisitive person you know i think once you stop becoming intellectually curious you might as well just chuck yourself somewhere I mean, really, you, you have to constantly be questioning your belief system on how you view things. Uh, I can learn something every day from a six-year-old, six-year-old, you know, from a professor, from some kid playing, you know, with a hat on the street. And to me, I wanted to know what other people thought. I wanted, I really, seriously, 
Why does this song, why did this song num, nine weeks at number one? More countries had this at number one than any other Beatles song. 19 weeks on the charts in America. What the video, we haven't even talked about the video uh, and, 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 and the great um, Michael Lindsay Hogg who gave me his time, who directed it. Of course, who directed Let It Be. We just saw the Jackson footage uh, for the Get Back series, which was brilliant. Uh, everybody chiming in. That was me just being a geek and a fan. Just <laughs> give it to me, man. Just tell me why. I really want to know. It's not like, hey, help me fill my book out. It's yeah. tell me. I want to. I'm dying to know why this freaking works. When I interviewed Brian Wilson, how do you do it? How do you do it? It's just so great. I mean, you do things. Paul is just a, on a different level. Paul McCartney is on a different level. And unless you go and ask Paul, and Paul will just tell you, it's magic. It comes from crazy places. You know, <laughs> you know him. He's not going to be. But these other people are like, no, 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 no. When Adam Duritz, who's a great songwriter, tells me it's about the craft. It's about putting it together. It's about melody. It's not just about lyrics. Melody comes from nowhere, man. Mozart, Beethoven, Sam Cooke. Every, you know, everything, the, the, the beautiful melodies don't come. Lyrics come from experience. We have the dictionary. We have books. We have things we can bring. Melody is truly is magic. It's out there in the, so Paul is so damn good. I just wanted to know why he was so damn good. How does yeah. this, how does songs affect us psychologically? How does this, how does, where's the philosophy in all of this? How does this affect the sociology of the world in the 1960s? Especially in the 1960s where the music meant something, not that it doesn't mean anything now, not one of those guys who put everything in a box, but that was a different time. And the Beatles were a different animal because everybody kind of was like, yeah, this is happening. This is happening. Oh, the Beatles are doing something. Everybody shut up. Beatles are doing something. And so that's something we don't have. Yeah, exactly. One of the things the way our, our format of our show is, is we don't have any rules except for we alternate between a new and an older album. And that way we're making sure that we kind of keep things fresh. And we've been kind of become advocates without realizing it of, of like, pushing back against the people saying, ah, music today ain't what it used to be. And we're kind of in that in-between age of uh, hearing that from one generation above us or below that oh, this music's better than this. And really that's not true. I mean, nope. music is great. Every, every year has amazing music. Yes. But I will say the one thing that we don't have anymore is that universality. I just don't think everybody's in their bubble listening to their, what their algorithm feeds them. And some things push beyond that a little bit, but I just, I don't know if we're going to have another Hey Jude anthem that everybody can sing. Nah, no, nah, nah. Not. I just because don't think it's going to happen. No, and there's a democratization of music, and I think it's a good thing. And Adam and I celebrated that in our podcast. Yeah. But there's also the seven great bands, and what are they going to do next? And everybody on the edge of their seat. When I wrote right. the eulogy when Prince passed, which I can't even believe is six years ago this month anyway, we're taping this. I talked about how every time Prince had something coming, every year he put a record out, I couldn't wait for that record to come out. I will send you my piece. I did the cover story for the 50th anniversary of Sgt. Pepper's uh, back in 2017 for The Aquarian. And the one thing that really boggled my mind, and I mentioned it a little bit, and I think it was quoted in the book. I, it, it, it never, I think somebody told me right before I started, they were like, think about it. In 1967, that would be like when, Hey Jude came, oh, excuse me, when Sgt. Pepper's came out, that would be like something being still part of the culture that was made in 1917. I mean, it was 50 years and people still go, yeah, so now I know it, it used to be always number one in the Rolling Stone thing and now it's like number 70. It's not even the, it, the top Beatle album anymore, but for 
decades. It was the greatest thing that anyone's ever done, right, in music. And, but it's still relevant 50 years. And so I'm not really sure you're going to get that now because it captured an entire section because quite frankly, you needed to have record contracts. You needed to be on the radio. And so it's good you don't need to do that. But it also does take away from that massiveness of Hey Jude being everywhere, you know what I mean? And affecting right. everyone globally. There's always give and take. But yeah, that's the one piece that I've kind of said, okay, as much as I'm an advocate for saying, no, no, music is great still today. There's, it's just as good. I have to say, okay, but yeah, your generation did have something that mine, mine didn't uh, in terms of that universality. And it was still new, by the way. Yeah. People need to know that. You know, this is only the second generation in the 1960s. And at that time, I was fascinated by the Rolling Stones because, you know, I remember when I saw the Stones in 78 and then 81, people were like, what the hell is this? I mean, that was, what, 40 years ago? They were like, why are these guys still doing this? <laughs> and you hear all, remember, remember back in, remember they used to ask the Beatles and Bob Dylan? The, journalists actually asked them this. Hey, how long do you think you could keep doing this? Why do oh people like you? That was like a question people asked Bob Dylan. Why? That's the greatest thing about Don't Look Back is those interviews with those journalists who are going to Bob Dylan. Like, why? My favorite answer of anything ever, politics, sports, anything, is when someone asked Bob Dylan, how many folk artists are there? And Bob exhaled and went, 78. <laughs> I mean, what kind of question is that? How yeah. would Bob, Bob Dylan know how many folk artists there are? <laughs> I mean, it's these are the questions these guys got. That no one knew what the hell rock and roll was. I think anytime anything's new, guys, <laughs> it's going to have a bigger effect. Like now, everybody's already heard everything fifty-five times. It's very, very hard when something is completely original. And so, at the time, no one used alien cadences or put on uh, cellos on a freaking pop song, unless it was produced by Phil Spector and he got a bunch of studio musicians in there or whatever. You know, pet sounds blew everybody's mind because no one did it. Now, we, you know, Kanye does pet sounds. So there's there's different. You know, there's always it's it's just the time. You know, it's new, shiny. No one knows what the hell's going on. I think those are the right things. I think that's yeah. maybe one of the curses that artists, uh, musicians, athletes face today is that over time, even though it's, it's new and, uh, it's unique and different, you know, there's really no such thing as a, as a new I idea. It's a, a collaboration of old ideas reworked or bottled up and, and sent out in a, in a different form. So over time by default, things become watered down and, and less exciting and less novel. So whether you're talking about will there ever be another Beatles band or will there ever be another Michael Jordan or Magic Johnson or Larry Bird, some of these household names or Ken Griffey Jr. You know, there probably are musicians and athletes that on paper, objectively speaking, if we were to be able to grab some people, let's say aliens or something that have never stepped foot on earth, and we just, we give them the Beatles and we give them, you know, some of the best bands of today. And we show them footage of some athletes from the sixties and athletes from, from today, you know, they would be a better judge to say who is better, but there's something about the, the first people that did something really cool that sticks with us. And it's difficult to reproduce that or overcome that, surpass that just simply because of the, the timeline of events. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and that's a that's another deeper question, certainly. 
but I agree 100% with that. And by the way, I'm sure there's a lot of music people who are listening to this right now going, I hope James knows that the Beatles ripped off Chuck Berry and... <laughs> And that they weren't completely original. And I know that there's, you know, the, the song Because is a uh, is a, uh, a Beethoven sonata backwards. And also in Hey Jude, and I write about it very extensively, and a lot of musicologists, Walter Everett told me this, Tim Riley, uh, you know, Hey Jude itself has a 1917 liturgical piece that Hey Jude, da, 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 is, is specifically a melody from a liturgical piece from 1917, which was taken, called the Te Deum, which was taken from something that was from another century. And he, the bridge of it is Save the Last Dance for Me from the Drifters. So even in Hey Jude, Paul is taking from other people. So the idea that even the Beatles were completely original is a fallacy in itself. But, it's, but again, your point well taken, it's still shiny and new. And I promise you, I know we're going to wrap up. This is the last thing I'll say. Dr. William Boone, I got to give him credit. He said that all pop songs that truly matter and stay with us over the years, specifically during its time as well, there are three key elements that he always teaches his class classes, and they are, does the pop song reflect its times? Is it a part of its times? And does it shape its times? And he says, and I agree, Hey Jude nails all three of those. And I think Dr. Boone really puts it well uh, when, he, when he frames it that way. I would agree with that. That's, that's very well said. Well, James, thank you so much. I, I know we said it at the top, but I, I just have to say one more time, it's, it's been an honor to have you on. Loved reading the book. More excited about the, the backstories after having read it. And uh, didn't think I could love a song like that anymore. And, and your book certainly has made it better. So we, we really appreciate it. I totally agree. Thank you, guys. Thank you so love much the show. for joining us. This was a blast. Thanks. Be good. Peace. All right. Bye. Take care. If you're enjoying listening to Album Divers, you can support our podcast by subscribing, reviewing, and sharing us with someone else who appreciates great music. Follow and connect with us on Facebook and Instagram at Album Divers. We'd love to hear your thoughts and feedback about our take of an album that you've already loved or have never heard before. Do you have an album you want us to dive into? Email us at albumdiverspodcast at gmail.com and we'll consider adding it to our queue for a future episode. Thanks again for joining us. We hope you never stop discovering music that moves you to dive deeper. Until next time.